Hello, my name is Brian McClintock. I am the owner founder of VidicalWine.com, and this is the first ever Vidical podcast. Um, if you've spent any amount of time exploring the wine world as I have, it won't be long before you come across the name Rajat Par. Coincidentally, I have a man sitting to my left who has the exact same name. Raj, how are you today? Good, you? I'm doing well. I feel weird saying hello to you because I've spent the last 24 hours with you and I'm a little blurry this morning. <laughs> Live to tell the tale. What is going on in your world? What is occupying your mind these days except disappearing raspberry bushes in Los Alamos? Exactly. Uh, hmm. That's an open-ended question. I could answer that probably. It could take me an hour. Well, we'll start with enlightenment so, and work our way down. Yeah, exactly. I'm just going to say that uh, happily living here in Los Alamos to start. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a vineyard uh, around 20 minutes from here called Domaine de la Côte. That takes a lot of my time. We have a vineyard up in Oregon called Seven Springs. Uh, and me and my friend Jordan McKay are writing a book, which is pretty much taken most of our lives in the last year or so. It's, it's called The Atlas of Taste. Uh, it's trying to discuss and talk about uh, why classic wines uh, taste the way they taste from around the world. So everything from Jura to Nevada Sacra to uh, Mosel to Piemonte to Burgundy. So just why these classic wines, uh, how they, you know, you know, what the soil is and why they taste uh, the way they do. So It's yeah. a real narrow niche right there. <laughs> You're covering yeah. the entire world. Wow, enjoy that rabbit hole, huh? Yeah, it's, uh, luckily it's only old world and only focused on Europe. So oh, okay. This first edition, at least, first volume. So When can we look forward to that? Uh, next fall, 2018. Wow. Yeah, so. Okay, that's exciting. Yeah. So, um... It, interesting. So for people who may not know about you, um, where did you get your start in the wine industry? I started working in San Francisco at a restaurant called Rubicon with a, a guy whose name is Larry Stone. Uh, I guess one of the most famous sommeliers in the world, definitely in America. And uh, he taught me. I worked with him for three years and then worked with Michael Mina after that for... 13 years mm-hmm. and then started making wine and so it's interesting as a sommelier you are literally the last step in the entire process you're literally opening wine and it's literally the furthest profession away from being in the vineyard what made you go from one pole to the other um, I, I, I guess that when I was working in the restaurants, I was, you know, I was thinking, I was like, what would I do when I'm like 50 years old? And one thing I decided on, when I'm 50, which I'm not 50 yet, I said, when I'm 50, I don't want to be working service in a restaurant, I'll do something else. And then I thought, what would I want to do? And start to make some wine and met Sashi and then just things just spiraled that way. So it was a way. It was just a way away from working. Uh, you know, working in a restaurant for yeah, 
you know how it is. Like working in a restaurant, you're there for like 12, 14, 16 hours every day. Right. There's very few people who stay on the floor for life, you know. Uh, there, there are people who, who, who've done it in the past, who still, like Roger DeGorn is still working in mm-hmm. restaurants. And I think maybe for 50 years, or close, mm-hmm. maybe 50, but maybe at least 40. I did 18 years. That was a good run. So this path kind of chose you in a way, and now you could have, I mean, having spent time anywhere, you could have gone anywhere in the world. But what really attracted you about Santa Barbara County? Uh, firstly, I was attracted to produce uh, wines I enjoy myself. So these wines are very, uh, they are styled in a way, which is which is the wines I like to drink myself, and that's for Sashi, my partner, Sashi Mormon. So you know it's 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 um, <laughs> the place uh, was quite obvious in my mind because uh, even though most people when they think of Chardonnay Pinot Noir uh, kind of think of Sonoma Coast or Napa or Santa Cruz places where these things been planted in Santa Barbara uh, you know it was basically there was uh, more opportunity there were more vineyards you could find. And I tasted some old wines from Aubon Clivain, and I'm like, wow, this is a cool place to... And I didn't realize why I chose Santa Barbara until, like, like recently, you know, in the last two years, even though I've been here for ten years. Um, so it was, it's just a special place. It's the soils are very unique. The climate is very unique. Uh, there's still lots of vineyards which haven't been discovered yet so mm-hmm. it's a it's and a new journey yeah now you make wine in Oregon as well yeah. how can you c- kind of compare the differences between the two Oregon we were very fortunate to take over a historic vineyard called Seven Springs uh, which been around since uh, I guess the mid 80s uh, the it's a very different uh, world not only climate, soil, but just everything is, is quite different there. It's, uh, it's a much shorter season. It's a more intense season. The vines are much more vigorous. The, the, the finished wine is a lot more uh, high impact. It's, you know, the goal there is to to make Pinot Noir with elegance and 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 uh, kind of soft texture, because Pinot there want, it wants to be uh, more rustic. You know, it wants to have it's volcanic soil where we are, so the tannins are more rugged. So the goal there is to kind of minimum extraction and make a round and soft wine. In San Rita, the goal is to you know, since the, thin, the skins are so thin, the goal is to extract and get more punch and power because it's much cooler here than it is there. It's cooler in Oregon in the spring and the winter, of course, uh, but in the summer it's quite warm, and here it's the opposite. It's kind of a mild spring here, early bud break, but the summer is very cool, so the skins are very thin here, so for mm-hmm. Pinot. So we don't get the same uh, tannins, so it's the opposite. Interesting. So with, uh, with Sandi, why don't you tell us a little bit about 
that project as a whole. And then we'll zoom in. Yeah, so Sandy, we, me and Sashi, we started that in 2009, the first vintage. And we were focusing on making mostly Chardonnay, a little bit of Pinot Noir. Sandhi means collaboration in Sanskrit. Uh, so it's all a negoc- all negotiation, all for purchase grapes. And now we're going to have some young vines from our own estate, but uh, it's, all, it's all, all from purchase grapes. Uh, and the goal was to produce a Chardonnay, uh, you know, three different uh, tiers of Chardonnay. One, an Appalachian wine, the Santa Barbara County Chardonnay. And one village wine, like the San Rita Hills, which is the Appalachian where we, uh, where we are based out of, and then make single vineyard wines, single crew wines. And so all from vineyards planted uh, before we were around. So, so we work with some uh, pretty famous vineyards called Sanford Benedict, uh, Mount Carmel, uh, both kind of older vineyards planted in the 70s and 90s, and then a young vineyard called Bentrock, which is, in my mind, our top vineyard. Uh, and uh, another young vineyard called Rita's Crown. So, you know, we have, we have a chance to work with these these uh, vineyards and really show the expression of Santa Barbara, of Santa Rita, and uh, then of these this mm-hmm. specific vineyards, yeah. You mentioned Santa Rita Hills, a specific AVA in Santa Barbara County. How much of your fruit comes from that area? Oh, in Sandy, um, I guess if you're looking at the entire production... 70% I would say San Rita Hills okay. and uh, the other uh, the, the only wine we make outside the Appalachian is the Santa Barbara County Chardonnay which is which is uh, a blend of San Rita Santa Maria and a little bit of uh, San Inez okay now how much of that 70% in San Rita Hills how much of that is Chardonnay uh, off the 70% I would say 90% is Chardonnay it's interesting. So I, I think of most people, they hear the name Santa Rita Hills and they're playing the word association game. The next word off their tongue is going to be Pinot Noir. Yeah. So why for you is Santa Rita Hills such a great place for Chardonnay? I think Chardonnay is, it's a, for me, I think that most of Santa Rita is, uh, you know, more, uh, in my mind, it's more Chardonnay land because it's so much... Uh, of the diatomaceous soils, because uh, Pinot you need more clay, and there is clay in San Rita, but in specific places, um, most of the Appalachian, at least on the southern part where we are, uh, where most of our vineyards are, it's a lot of uh, shale and diatomaceous and silica-based soils, and uh, quite shallow soils, and nutrient-deficient soils, and very light clay, so I think it's better for Chardonnay. And yeah, Pinot as well too, it's, uh, but I think that Chardonnay is unique here. Um, I mean, you know, in 50 years, people will call this area a reference for Chardonnay and Pinot like they do in Burgundy or anywhere else. I think it's maybe the most special place to grow Chardonnay in the world. Well, we had plenty of Chardonnay last night. <laughs> yes. I seem to recall mm-hmm. something going on. It was a really actually fun blind tasting where we pitted um, Chardonnay from around the world blind, including uh, 
a couple of your cuvées. We had the Santa Rita Hills Chardonnay from 2012, which will be featured in the April 1st Wine Club, along with the 2013 Bent Rock Chardonnay. Now, you talked about Bent Rock being very, very special. We got a chance to visit that place yesterday. Let's talk a little bit about that vineyard. Uh, you know, it's, I mean, in, in, in more of a... Uh, micro terroir situation it's not I mean we of course the parcel we have a bent rock is very uniquely one small four acre parcel of bent rock um, the, the vineyards we saw I mean, it's more like a ranch because there's um, you know it's, it's a big vineyard maybe different parcels are all like scattered around and maybe around a hundred acres planted mm -hmm. there so uh, it's, it's difficult to talk about just um, the whole bent rock as one, as a whole, uh, the ranch or the um, different blocks. I can speak specifically of the bent rock Chardonnay, which we get. It's a very small piece of uh, one vineyard. It's a north-facing slope. Um, it's uh, it's the I guess they call it uh, block one in bent rock, which is a which is a, a very unique, unique, unique little vineyard. It's mostly the soils is uh, like Flintstone. It's like compressed silica and clay. So it's pretty, uh, pretty good blend. It's a good blend of clay and uh, the silica silex chert, they call it here. And uh, it, it, it produces a wine with, uh, with pretty deep concentration with lots of acid and this this minerality on the palate which is very salty and and uh, very textural it's 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 not a it's not a easy drinking uh california chardonnay it's more tart it's more austere it's more more driven by acid it's uh, this kind of saline flavors because mm -hmm. the ocean is we can see the ocean yesterday because see the beach from how far are you as the crow flies from the ocean Probably like nine or ten miles, maybe. But you can directly, you can. Yesterday, we could see, you could see the beach from from the from the vineyard. Yeah, and the wind seemed to be howling straight off the ocean. Yeah, it's there. it's always windy there. It's north facing. It's completely exposed. It's you know, it's a, it's a unique place. That little piece of bent rock, which is a a larger vineyard, of course, different parcels. Okay, so let's back up a little bit. I think if if someone. You know, Chardonnay being the most popular grape in the country, people have very defined opinions about the category of, let's say, California Chardonnay. And I'm sure you hear a lot of those opinions, and you've dealt with them throughout your career. Chardonnay has had a lot of iterations in California. So how would you describe your Chardonnay within the context of what people think about when they think of California Chardonnay? Well, hmm. Loaded question for sure. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, so I came I, with I, ammo today. I, I, guess, I guess if you look back at at a time, uh, a time in the sixties and seventies uh, when Chardonnay was produced, it was mostly produced in, of course, the most famous area back then was Napa Valley, and 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 the style of Chardonnay at the time was because you know you could only get Chardonnay at the time from Burgundy. So when people made Chardonnay in California, they styled the same European style with freshness and acidity and, 
and, and you know, and then in the eighties and nineties, the wines became more, more lush and creamy, and the whole unfiltered situation showed up, and the wines were, you know, softer and, and riper, and then got oakier and more buttery, and so through the nineties, two thousands, the wines were quite rich, and the definition of California Chardonnay was a Chardonnay which is creamy, butterscotch, popcorn, soft, low acid, and judicial amount of oak. And and so when we started Sandy, our idea was to kind of go back to the way Chardonnay was produced in California, maybe in the 60s and 70s. And I've been lucky to try some older vintages from uh, Stony Hill and Hansel and, and then from Mount Eden. And these wines were always austere and more the mineral, more more textural, not just popcorn butterscotch. So I, I guess to go back. So our style is definitely in that more kind of a you know, more acid driven, more more fresh, more lemon lime, trying to move away from using a lot of new oak and the buttery popcorn kind of flavors, mm -hmm. which Chardonnay gets with age, you know. Chardonnay will eventually get to that state. It's just the nature of the grape. And um, so our, our goal is to, you know, produce fresh and vibrant, uh, unmanipulated and uh, acid-driven. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, and I, I agree. I mean, in terms of freshness and lower alcohol, um, less use of new oak, I can see how there are correla correlations between the wineries you mentioned, Stony Hill, Hansel, um, Mount Eden, etc. But at the same time, your wines are definitely unique and different compared to those wines. What would you attribute that to? I think it's the soil here we have. It's a very different soil than you get in the North Coast. So mm -hmm. in the North Coast, there's mostly you know, volcanic, and then there's some sandstone and gold ridge, depending where you are, uh, more kind of acid-driven soils, and we have mostly uh, all marine sedimentary soils, so mm -hmm. all uh, soils from, from the ocean, uh, so we get a much more saline, salty kind of flavor in the wine, um, and... You know, it's 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 just a different sub subsoil here we have in the in in Santa Barbara County, and I think that is the main reason why the wines are so different. I mean, the climate, the weather between if you if you compare Lompoc to like Casadero or Occidental, you know, they're both on the coast, and the weather is not that different. You know, it might be you know a few degrees here and there, but the major difference is the soil, which is. So for people who are really just getting into soil, I mean, that's, that's a, that's, I, w would you say with, within our understanding of viticulture that soil is probably the least understood aspect? For sure. Yeah. Especially in California where everything is brand driven, you know, mm -hmm. everyone thinks of brands and thinks of uh, a name of a person or a winery or mm -hmm. a vineyard. People forget it comes from a place, and that place is more important than mm -hmm. than the brand. You know, Sandy is less important. Senorita Hills is more important. So when you t when you talk about richer soils like clay, if we can just make a generalization versus really, you know, infertile rocky soils, what does that do 
to the finished wine. Let's focus on Chardonnay. You know, clay it's an, <laughs> clay is, is a complicated soil type because it's, it's basically minerals from uh, of, of whatever the base soil is. So you can have a clay from uh, limestone, you can have a clay from diatomaceous, you can have clay from volcanic. Uh, it's the good minerals, and that mineral in the soil gives the wine its texture. It's, it, clay is a very important. On its own, clay is not important, but when it when it uh, mixes with stones, whatever the stone could be, it's different kinds of fossils, or it it changes uh, the dimension of the wine. So in Chardonnay. Uh, Chardonnay doesn't need a lot of clay. Chardonnay likes stones, likes likes infertile soils, likes more rocky soil, mm -hmm. and that could be anything from volcanic to limestone to you know any kind of uh, and and that blend of the clay and the stone produces a wine of a place. Mm -hmm. If it's only clay, if you plant something on a fertile alluvial bed. And it's full of clay, and and the vine is always, you know, also clay uh, retains moisture. So if the vines are always happy with water they get from clay, and they don't struggle, the wines are more flabby. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you have, you know, clay and stones, and and the vines have to struggle, they'll produce, they'll naturally produce less grapes, naturally uh, control the vigor and naturally produce more concentrated and interesting grapes. Yeah, and so as we focus and zoom back in on Bent Rock, you know, going there was a real treat yesterday. The, you can see how intense and rocky that site is. So how, how far, usually when you're talking about soil, you're talking about there's a topsoil and then there's a mother rock below. And sometimes the mother rock can be really, really deep below. Sometimes it can be really, really close to the surface. How rocky is bent rock? It's quite, the soil is quite shallow, so you probably have, I, I guess, if you're on the top part of bent rock where we were, mm -hmm. there's a lot more clay, but as you go down the hill, um, you know, it's fairly steep, so you probably have, you know, less than a foot of topsoil in the bottom of the vineyard. Mm -hmm. uh, on the top, you have probably maybe two feet of clay, and after that it's just pure uh, rock. Mm -hmm. And as the vines go deeper, of course, if you go there in June, where we stop to plow, because we want to keep the, keep the moisture in the soil, um, you see it's just, it's just looks, it's massive boulders everywhere. It's just, it's just, it's quite rocky. So, so that, those shallow soils, produce a low yielding and concentrated grape, yeah. Yeah, you know, we had a, a blind tasting yesterday with 2013 and 2014 Bent Rock in the flight with some of the world's best wines, including Jean-Marc Rouleau. It was incredible how well those wines showed and how difficult, I think, they are to pick apart from Burgundy when they're in that format, even when you know they're in there somewhere. Um, perhaps you can talk about, as we start to segue into, into the cellar, what things are you really working on with Chardonnay and trying to achieve in the cellar? 
Uh, first thing is, you know, uh, the goal here is, is, is to produce a unique wine from the place because we don't even try and, you know, of course we all love Burgundy and that's the, that's the, the Holy Grail, but, you know, we have a different soil, different climate, so we produce something quite different. Uh, our wines are um, quite high energy and, and, and you know, textural wines. Uh, you know, they are not, they don't have the same flavor profile as, as Burgundy does, but it, uh, but it has a similar, similar kind of texture. It's not creamy, it's more austere, it's more lemon, it's more, you know, more kind of, more nervy, more tense uh, in a way. Uh, and in the cellar, winemaking is very simple, it's crushed pressed aged in barrel for 11 months in large barrel, 500 liter barrels, and then after that it's taken into a stainless steel tank and aged for another six months and slight fining in bottle. So it's, it's a very, uh, very simple, uh, and all the wines are made the same way. So it's, there's no, uh, you know, it's not, uh, making wine is not a democracy. It's just made the same way. Mm-hmm. We don't we don't give anything special attention, or it's just all the grapes treated the same way. Yeah, no additives, um, and yeah, natural. So it, it's interesting. I think that with when you're in the cellar, there's different things you can experiment with with oxygen and how how much your wine is exposed to oxygen, and actually when in the cellar. Um, how would you describe your treatment of Chardonnay along those lines? It's, uh, I guess, in the vinification uh, side of uh, Chardonnay, it's very uh, oxidative in the, in the, while it's fermenting. So we don't, uh, we don't, uh, we let the juice brown, we don't um, control it, we don't uh, add sulfur and stuff like that. So it's just, once the wine is f- uh, finished primary fermentation, then it's topped and kept very reductive. So it's not, it's in a cold cellar, it's not racked, it's not stirred, it's not opened, it's not touched. It's just, okay. so oxidative winemaking, reductive élevage. Okay, you said the R word twice, reductive. Reduction is something we've it's been... The o- it's, reduction is the opposite of oxidation. Mm-hmm. So we don't... Once the wine has finished fermentation, we don't uh, allow too much oxygen. Whatever happens in the barrel with the pores, the barrel, and that's pretty much it. We don't we don't allow it to uh, breathe anything more than what it's in the vessel it's in. So if I'm John or Jane Q drinker, and someone says, "Hey, this is a reductive Chardonnay," what does that mean to me if I don't know the first uh, thing about winemaking? It just means that the wine has been uh, contained in its own element with the juice and all the solids, and it's not. Uh, there's no oxygen involved in in the in the process uh, after the wine is produced, so it produces a wine which is more tense, more kind of uh, nervy, and and I guess the best way of reduction could be when your wine gets a slight kind of a matchsticky. I know it sounds kind of weird not to have wine taste like matchstick, but 
in, in, a, yeah, in, a, in a good way. There's a little bit because sulfites are produced naturally in in winemaking. You don't have to add it. They don't add it uh, until bottling. So uh, they kind of just bind with the with the solids and produce a, a wine which is kind of more kind of flinty and has has that kind of uh, you know gunflint kind of a minerality on the palate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and there are certain par uh, there are definitely party lines with that style of Chardonnay. It's a style that I happen to love. Um, when we think of some of the best Burgundy producers in the world that we love to drink, the Rouleaux, um, the Coches of the world, that style is definitely prevalent. Um, did you take a lot from them, having visited and knowing those guys personally, um, in your travels? Yeah, of course, you learn from people you visit, and, and, and not only them, but also producers in the Loire or in the Roussillon, and you see what, you know, how they how they produce white wine, because all white grapes uh, act the same way. And and we, we get that, those flavors from uh, that kind of winemaking. Okay. Of very kind of, you kind of don't, uh, I mean, it, it's, it's something, you know, you just have to not, you know, mess with the wine. Just let it be the way it is, and it'll, it'll, those flavors come to the wine on their own. Mm -hmm. uh, if you try to mess with it, it kind of changes the the direction of the wine. So you have to believe you have to believe in the vineyard because these flavors come from vineyards. You can't. I mean, it's a natural process. It's mm -hmm. not. It's you. You can't guarantee to have a certain flavor in a wine. It comes from that year, from that place. Mm -hmm. Is, are there ways that you can actually shepherd it though, and encourage reduction? In your Chardonnay, uh, yeah, by not, you know, but not not doing much to it. If you, mm -hmm. if, you know, you, you can't guarantee it in any way, but you can just let it just be on its own, and and this shows up in, in the wine eventually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great. So I'm visiting Santa Barbara County. Can I come visit Sandy? Like, how is this laid out? If I'm going to the the valley for the first time. Uh, whew, we have a small operation, so we have uh, we have a tasting room by appointment. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Have to just uh, contact us through our website. Okay. Sandywines.com or Domendelocote.com. We have a tasting room in Oregon, Evening Land, in Dundee, but in and out there also we have Sandy and Domendelocote in the tasting room there. But in Lompoc, it's by appointment. Now, if I were to hire you as, let's say, Raj Park <laughs> Touring Agency, what would be, the, if I spend a weekend in greater Santa Barbara County, what are the must-stops for food, wine, etc. in this place? You've lived here quite some time. You've visited here for a number of years. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Give us the playbook. Uh, so, uh, we are lucky to live uh, close to the town of Santa Barbara, which is a very cool and beautiful little town, which is uh, you know full of uh, energy because it's a it's a college town, so there's a lot of you can you can hang out with the with the college kids or not. But there's there's really good. The farmers market is amazing. It's like on Saturdays, the farmers market in Santa Barbara is amazing. There's a bunch of cool wine bars and restaurants. You know, uh, 
in Santa Barbara, there's a there's a really uh, happening taco scene around here. Of course, a big uh, Mexican uh, influence. So you know, Lily's Taco or Super Rica is really great. Uh, in you know, Santa Barbara, in, in Santa Barbara, and then if you go outside Santa Barbara, there's you know. Los Alamos, which is where we are right now, it's a little kind of a cool little town, only on one street. There's like, uh, you know, Bell Street, great sandwiches and salads. There's, uh, you know, Bob's Well Bread, which is perhaps the best pastries and coffee around in the whole Santa Barbara. It's really great. Uh, you, can go to, you can go to Los Olivos and taste a bunch of wine and... Uh, especially the weekends, it's packed there. Lampok, not not a whole lot happening. That in Lampok. is a cultural mecca, my friend. But yeah, not much happening in Lampok. You can get Floriano's tacos. Floriano's tacos does it for me. Some good Thai there too. Yeah, that's decent. But it's you know it's a yeah it's 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 not a yeah for food it's not much. For wine, there's good vineyards there, but you know uh, there's there's not a not a whole lot of whole lot to see in the town of Lompoc, but, you know, Los Alamos, uh, Los Olivos, and things are growing. Buellton, there's things are happening, things are opening. You can go to the Hitching Post and see the classic Santa Maria barbecue situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's just changing slowly. It's, it's a very uh, rural place, so it's not, you know, it's not as uh, flamboyant and fancy as Napa Valley is. I don't think it ever will be because it's controlled by the people here. So it's you kind of like that. Yeah, I like that. It's kind of you know, slightly. Yeah, I mean, you know, tourist tourism is good, but it's what we, people drive from L.A. or the area. So it's not, it's not like you know, there's no fancy three-star Michelin restaurants here, and mm -hmm. I don't see it happening anytime soon. So. Which is my normal Tuesday. Yeah, it's yeah. Michelin Star Tuesday. Yeah, some so. people have Taco Tuesday. Yeah. Michelin Star Tuesday. Yeah, there's none here. Right um, now, in terms of you've done so much in the wine world, um, accomplished so much. What do you look forward to for the future? Because I know you're always, always plotting, scheming in a good way, <laughs> thinking about new things that you want to conquer. What What is on your mind for the future? Oh, I think that just this book has kind of taken taken most of my time in the last couple of years. Um, I guess nothing new to plan. I think I just want to focus on on Domingo de la Cote, our vineyard here, and in Oregon, and just yeah, I think I'm end of the road right here. This is mm -hmm. no more crazy big projects and. I think just take care of what we have, you know, Sandy and Luma de la Cote and Evening Land. And that's pretty much, that's going to be the, I think the rest of my life, I have no other ambitions to <laughs> to anything, anything else, really. Do you, from a travel standpoint, do you want to slow things down? I mean, you, you were on the road for like five straight months, it seemed like. Yeah, that was for the book, you know, just to research for the book. Last year, we were on the road a lot, so... I don't. I don't want to uh, travel uh, more. I'd like to stay here and stay in California and stay in stay in Santa Barbara and kind of focus on 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 the wines here and the vineyards here. So. All right. Well, th thank you so much for being here. I am thrilled to be offering your wine 
Um, and it just really gives me an excuse to hang out with you. Um, you're a good friend, and I appreciate you kicking off the first ever Viticole podcast because yeah. it just had to be you, my friend. Sounds good. As Frank would say. As Frank would say. Sounds good. I'm right. excited. Good luck with the, on April 1st. April 1st. It. April 1st, yeah. It's going to be a good day. Um, and it's not, a, it's not April Fool's at all. It's just a real offer. Oh, good. Perfect. Yeah. I was wondering about that. Um, okay, so have a great trip up to San Francisco, and I Thank will you. catch up with you on the trail, my friend. Sounds Thank you. good. Thank you. All right. <laughs>